Father, we love you, Lord. Thank you for the snow out there. We thank you that you are in control of all things, Lord. We thank you that you hold us, your children, in the palm of your hand, Lord. No one can snatch us out if we are in Christ, if we are trusting in you. We pray, Lord, that you would lift our hearts to you today, that you would help us to set our minds on things above and not on things of this world, that you would remove any distractions and any hindrances, any Anything that's getting in the way, Lord, of us worshiping you and praising you and seeing your beauty and your glory, would you just shower us with your love this morning? Would you help us, Lord, to love each other? Would you help us to have joy and peace in our homes because you are first in our lives and we continue to seek you daily? So, Lord, be with us today. Bless this message. Help us to go out into this world, continue to be salt and light and to be a blessing to others. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Today's teaching is titled, A Friend Who Sticks Closer Than a Brother. You might have heard that phrase before, a friend who sticks closer than a brother. You know, there's a dear lady, a Christian elderly lady that I've been ministering to lately and caring for. And when I go and visit her, she loves to sing to the Lord. And it's such a joy because she has like the entire hymn book. She has a hymn book in her room and she has almost all these hymns memorized. And so she'll say, Nick, what do you want to sing today? And I sing with her. And so the song that I've often been telling her I like to sing is what a friend we have in Jesus. And so there we were in her room singing together what a friend we have in Jesus all our sins and griefs to bear what a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer oh what peace we often forfeit oh what needless pain we bear all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer have we trials and temptations is there trouble anywhere we should never be discouraged take it to the Lord in prayer Can we find a friend so faithful? Who will all our sorrows share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. I love that song. Such a simple song, but just filled with so much meat, if you will, of who Jesus is, that he's always there with us. He'll never leave us. He'll never forsake us. Why would we go to anyone else but to him with our burdens, with our weaknesses, with our temptations, with our pains. And so I ask the question, is singing a part of your life? Is singing a part of your everyday life? Don't use the excuse, well, I don't have a good voice. I don't let that stop me. Do you remember all the verses that talk about how beautiful and amazing David's voice is and was? I don't, I don't, I don't remember any of those. Do you? David just had this amazing voice. Maybe he did, but we we don't see that anywhere. But what we do see everywhere is David singing unto the Lord, dancing unto the Lord, wrote most of the Psalms. We have 150 songs in the Bible. So if you're like, I don't know what song to sing. I I don't know where to start with praising the Lord. Turn to a psalm and sing it to the Lord. Meditate on it. Psalm 63 at about 2 a.m. when I couldn't sleep last night and I'm tossing and turning. Has that ever happened to any one of you? Do you all just sleep through the night, the whole night, and you just go, wow, the last thing I remember was closing my eyes and now I'm awake. That happens to me like once every couple years, I think. So I have to think of something to do in the middle of the night when I know I'll wake up. Now, I used to have a coworker who said, I man, I got to go to the bathroom like three, four times a night. And I'm like, that sounds miserable, but I'm not quite there yet, but I am awake just laying there. And Psalm 63, that's my go-to. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Thus I've seen you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory because your loving kindness is better than life. My lips will praise you. And it goes on from there, but David's in this weary land and he goes, I'm going to you, Lord. I'm seeking you. Your loving kindness is better than life. Bring a psalm with you to bed. Bring a song, something to fill your heart with joy and peace in the middle of the night. And when you awake with anxiety and with worry and with stress and with fear, push that out with the 
word of God. Psalm 7:17 says, I will thank the Lord for his righteousness and sing praises to the name of the Lord Most High. Psalm 66, 8, bless our God, O peoples, let the sound of his praise be heard. Psalm 81, 1, sing for joy to God our strength. Make a joyful noise to the God of Jacob. Yesterday, Leah and I just woke up tired. Has that ever happened to you as well? You ever wake up just, wait, I just slept. Why am I tired now? Why is it so hard to get my day going? And so we're kind of just stumbling around the house and I'm putting together the message and then I hear some music playing. She turned on the little Sony, whatever you call it, speaker. And all of a sudden I grab Mercy and she's like dancing with me and we're dancing in the living room. And it's like the joy of the Lord filled the house. We went from mopey and complaining and oh, woe is me for whatever reason to joy is filling this place. I'm turning to the Lord to bless him, to praise him. Psalm 95, one, come let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout to the rock of our salvation. Psalm 98, 4, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth, let your cry ring out and sing praises. We're just scratching the surface. I could spend the next hour just giving you verse after verse after verse about singing to the Lord. And this message isn't even about singing, but I just felt like I needed to talk about it for a couple minutes because I think it's so important with our walks with the Lord. Psalm 150, verse 6, it's the last verse in the Psalms. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. If you have breath in your lungs, if you have a heartbeat, God wants you to praise him. That's why he made you, to worship him, to glorify him, to praise him. And if you say, well, I'm struggling, it's hard. Well, there's a Psalm for that too. Psalm 42. He preaches to himself, hope in God. He says, soul, why are you in despair? He says, soul, I remember those days when you were in the congregation and you were giving thanks and you were worshiping the Lord. Soul, you're not there today. You're not there this morning. So why are you in despair? Hope in God, for I will again praise you. It's this wrestling match going on in his soul. He knows he needs to sing. He's not feeling it. And that is us many days in our life, if we're honest, I believe. We need to say, Lord, tune my heart to sing your praise. Our hearts need to be tuned, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thine courts above. Our hearts go this way, and we need to say, Lord, seal my heart. Tune my heart to sing to you, to praise you. Sometimes we need to say like Peter, Lord, to whom shall we go? John 6, 68, you have the words of eternal life. I want to go this way and that way. Lord, I need to turn to you. I don't always understand what's going on in life. I don't always understand your word. The disciples were cross-eyed at that point as Jesus is saying over and over again, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood if you want any part in me. Many of the disciples left. He turns to Peter, are you going to leave too? And he says, Lord, where am I going to go? You have the words of eternal life. I love the Greeks who approach Philip in John 12, 21. They sneak over to Philip and they say, Philip, we wish to see Jesus. That's all they said. We wish to see Jesus. We want to see him. We want to spend time with him. And Philip goes to another disciple and the other disciples approach Jesus and they tap him on the shoulder. doesn't say they tapped him on the shoulder, but they got his attention and said, Jesus, they want to see you. But Jesus had something else going on. He said, I, I need to set my face my mind, my heart towards Jerusalem. It's time for me to go to the cross. So I don't know if those Greeks ever did get to see him, but that needs to be our hearts. Jesus, I want to see you. I want to know you. I want to have more of you every day as that song goes. Give me Jesus. You can have all this world, but give me Jesus. It kind of sounds cliche, but really that's the solution to every problem. If you have a problem or a struggle or a trial or a temptation or a weakness in your life, that is the solution. More of Jesus. You need more of him. And so that's the point of today's message that we're going to get into, is that there is one who is closer than a brother. You have a friend who is always there, and his name is 
Jesus. This is more of a just a devotional message today, a, a reminder of who Christ is and to lean on him for everything. You know, wouldn't it be great if, if you needed encouragement in life, if you needed comfort, if you needed love, if you needed more joy, more peace, if you needed direction and guidance and strength, if you needed hope that at any point you could look to someone and they'd be there to help you with those things. Welcome to Christianity. That's Jesus. He's there for you 24-7, 365 days of the year. He's there for you. Are you calling on him? He longs to hear from you. He longs to help his children. I want to give you seven ways Jesus fulfills Proverbs 18:24. A friend who sticks closer than a brother. And the word friend there in the Hebrew actually means someone who loves. It's translated lover over and over in the Old Testament. Jesus is the lover of our soul, the one who died for us. Hebrews 2.14 is where I'd like you to turn. If you have a Bible, a smartphone, an Android, uh, or the Bible memorized, that's where you want to go. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, and this is where we're going to be camping out today, verses 14 through 18, and I just want to walk through these verses, and I counted seven ways that Jesus is closer than a brother, and we're just going to walk through them and talk about these together. Hebrews 2.14, since then the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he suffered, he's able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. And so I was asking myself, why did I land on this text? You know, I wanted to look at Proverbs 18, 20, 24, and that there's one that sticks closer to a brother, that we have this friend. And for some reason, this text just... I was prompted to go here, and I think it's also the context which brought me to this passage, and the context is that Jesus is our elder brother, that Jesus, if he's our brother who sanctifies us, who died for us, if you look at verse 12, I will proclaim your name to my brethren in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise in verse 13, and again, I will put my trust in him, and again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me, and Who's talking there? Well, it's a quotation from Psalm 22, a psalm of Jesus. Remember Psalm 22, 1? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A psalm that goes on to talk about how he was pierced. And then it says here, he will proclaim your name to my brethren in the midst of the congregation. I will sing. Does Jesus sing? Just to tie in the singing portion with this text here. Jesus sings. It was the last thing he did with the disciples before going to the Garden of Gethsemane. If you read the Gospel of Matthew, many people pass over that. No pun intended. They were having the Passover supper. And there they were singing together. And Jesus sings the praises of God. Pretty cool. But Hebrews 2.14, we're going to start with point number one. In the seven ways Jesus fulfills Proverbs 18.24, Jesus partook of our lowly estate. He shows us he's our friend. He's closer than a brother because he took on flesh and blood. He didn't just come down from heaven to be with us. He came to be one of us. There's a Greek word here, koinonia. It says share in flesh and blood. We all share. We participate. We have communion, if you will, in flesh and blood. And so Jesus had to do the same. And it says he partook likewise. So that I love that word koinonia, Acts 2.42. Lee and I have been talking about the Acts study the women go through. It's great. She'll call me like at work when I'm on my break. Hey, what, what's, the, what's the answer to this question? 
huh, what does this mean? And so I'm like, you're cheating, okay? You need to do this on your own, okay? And so we joke about it. But Acts 2.42, they continually devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the breaking of bread, prayer, and koinonia, fellowship. That was what the early church did, constantly meeting with each other, constantly eating meals together, constantly praying together. It was like they were, it was just this unstoppable force of love and joy and peace and fear. It says the fear of the Lord and just people were being added to them day after day. I want to be a part of that. Look at the joy they have over there. And Lee and I are like the constant struggle of work and being busy and the koinonia is way over here like Sunday for an hour and we try to do it in the middle of the week. It's, just, it's really hard to stay continually devoted to those things. So they were devoting themselves to fellowship, to sharing of their lives, their money. It says they were selling their houses, selling their possessions so that no one was in need. This beautiful picture and here koinonia sharing in flesh and blood. And Jesus said, I'm going to be your friend by taking on flesh and blood as well. Remember the text in Philippians 2 where it talks about the humility of Jesus, although he existed, verses 5 through 7, Philippians 2, although he existed in the very form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or held onto, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of a man. He emptied himself of his divine privileges, of his glory, of his throne in heaven. Ruling and reigning, he came down to earth to be like one of us, to be a friend, if you will, of the sinners, the text says in the book of Matthew, to seek and save that which is lost. He came down to be with the lepers, to be with the blind, to be with the poor. Did people touch lepers in Jesus' day? Jesus heals in different ways, but many times, several times, he'll touch those who are sick, those who are ill, the lepers. He'll touch them and heal them to show, look, you're not beyond me. I'm here at your level. I've taken on flesh and blood to heal, to seek, and to save. Second Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor that you through his poverty might become rich. When was Jesus rich? Do you remember the Bible verse that says Jesus was rich after the manger? His, his parents won the lottery. Remember that verse? No, I don't, it's not in there, right? He, he said, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests. The son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Did he have to come down from heaven like that? Why, why couldn't he be like Solomon? What, he's a king. He's Lord. He created everything. It's all his. There's not one square inch of the universe that Jesus doesn't say, mine. He's the creator. It's all his. You go, wow, Elon Musk has a lot of money and Bill Gates and the Amazon guy and whatever, they're billions of dollars, billions, almost a trillion. The whole universe, every ounce of gold, anything that you can imagine that's worth anything, he says, that's mine. I'm going to come down now to earth to take on flesh and blood, to be born in a manger and to say foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, and the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. I'm going to humble myself and be a friend and come down to their level. In Philippians 2, it says to consider others more important than yourself. Than yourselves. Do, do not do anything out of selfishness, but consider others more important. To get underneath. That's what Jesus did. Washing his disciples' feet. Getting down low. That's hard for us to do. We want to elevate ourselves. We, we want to be served. Jesus said, I didn't come to be served. I came to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. One commentator puts it this way. He had it in his power to choose the manner in which he would come. He might have come in the condition of a splendid prince. He might have rode in on a chariot of ease or have dwelt in a magnificent palace. He might have lived with more than the magnificence of an oriental prince and might have bequeathed treasures greater than those of Solomon, but he chose not to do it. He chose the path of humility, the path of suffering, the path of weakness, 
to take on our lot, our pain, our suffering, ultimately our sin in dying on the cross for us. So point number one, Jesus took on our lowly estate. Point number two, verse 14, second half, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. Point number two, Jesus through his death destroyed the power Satan had in our lives. Katagaro, to abolish, to destroy, to render useless. Satan's plan backfired. You ever had a car that backfired? Stick a potato in the exhaust pipe and the car backfires? Is that car going anywhere? Satan's plan has gone nowhere. It's been abolished, destroyed. It's rendered useless. He has zero power over you. If you're in Christ, if you're trusting in Jesus, Satan has no power over you. Now, Ephesians 6 says, Ephesians 5, I believe it is actually, do not give a foothold to the enemy. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't be angry and let the sun go down because if you do, Satan can have an opportunity. So we don't want to be of the mindset, oh, he has no power over me. I can just live however I want and do whatever I want. No, he's still knocking at the door of your heart every day. But if you are in Christ, there's that force field, if you will, around you to where he has no power over you and no power over you in terms of death. 1 John 3, 8. The Son of God appeared for this purpose that he might destroy the works of the devil. Colossians 3.15 Jesus disarmed the rulers and the authorities. He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. I love 1 Corinthians 15.55-57 O death, where is your sting? O death, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The tree in the garden where Adam and Eve fell and where sin and death entered the world was pointing to another tree outside of Jerusalem. Galatians 3.14 says, Cursed is he who is hung upon the tree. Jesus was cursed for us. He reversed the curse outside of Jerusalem when he hung upon that cross for our sins. If you read John 19, 41, it says that in that place there was a garden. Oh, that's interesting. In the place where Jesus died on the tree, there's a garden, just like there was a tree in the midst of a garden where sin and death entered the world. Here, sin and death is conquered where Jesus in that garden tomb rose from the grave, conquering sin, conquering Satan, conquering death. All part of God's beautiful plan. John eleven twenty five. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me lives even though he dies. Remember the thief on the cross? They're all dying together, Jesus and these two thieves beside him. And he cries out to Jesus for mercy. Remember me, Jesus, in your kingdom. What are those famous words Jesus said? Today you will be with me in paradise. That's how we need to think of death. It's just the entryway into eternal bliss, paradise with Christ. Someone once said, quote, somebody Somebody or someday, sorry, you will read or hear that I'm dead. Don't you believe a word of it? I shall be more alive than I am now. I will just have changed my address. I will have gone in the presence of God. It's just a change of address. It's just an entryway into heaven, eternal bliss, where we'll know him, we'll see him, we'll be like him, and every tear will be wiped away. No more pain, no more sorrow no more suffering. That's what we have to look forward to because Jesus, our friend, died for us. Number three, Jesus sets us free from the fear of death and slavery. He sets us free from the power of death. He sets us free from the fear of death and slavery. Verse 15, 
Hebrews 2.15, that he might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. He doesn't want us to live in fear. That was a whole message a week or two ago. He wants us to know fear, but not that kind of fear. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The more you fear him, the less you fear anything else. Some translations say deliver. Some say free, that he might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery. John 8.36 says, if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. John 8.32, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. He's called us to freedom. John 15, 15, no longer do I call you slaves, but I call you friends. We're friends of God. We're friends of Christ. We're not slaves to sin. We're not slaves to the enemy. We're not slaves to our past. We're friends of Jesus. John 15, 15. Romans 8, 15. You've not received a spirit a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. You've received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. When I think of slavery and freedom, I think I can't help but talk about the Israelites again. And it's interesting because I was reading, as I was reading this text, I once read about a pastor. He said, when I put together a message, I read the text 50 times. He goes, I, I want to know the text before I preach it. And I don't know how many, I don't count how many times, but I'm constantly reading the text, meditating on the text, cross-referencing, looking at the Greek. Lord, I'm just trying to squeeze out every ounce of value there is in this text. Is there something I'm not seeing here? I'm going to read this commentary and that commentary. Lord, show me. And as I was reading this text, it dawned on me that it seems to be a hint of Moses in this text. Although he's talking about Jesus, all throughout, I just felt like there was a hint of Moses with a deliverer who delivered Israel from slavery and bondage. And there's certain things in this text. Moses was a priest, and we'll talk about how Jesus is the high priest here. And I just thought it was interesting that at chapter 3, right after this, there's no chapter breaks in the originals. It, it goes on to talk about Jesus and Moses and how Moses is like a house and Jesus is like the builder of the house. And Jesus is greater than Moses. And so I just thought that was quite fascinating. But what did the Israelites have to fear? They went through the Red Sea, 10 plagues on Egypt. Egypt's destroyed. They're saved. They've seen God's power. Pillar of cloud by the day, pillar of fire by the night. The rock that followed them was Christ, we're told in 1 Corinthians 10. They've seen the power. They're set free. Is there anything that they should fear? I mean, what could come their way to where they're like, that's, I don't know if we can handle that. After all of that, right? And when you look through the Old Testament, as they're in the wilderness grumbling and complaining for 40 years, going in circles, and most of them just dying off slowly, finally Moses sends in 12 spies to go look at the promised land. Do you remember that? It's found in the book of Numbers. And they go in and they see these Nephilim. They see these giants. And 10 of them come back with this report. And they say, these giants are too big. They're going to devour us, Moses. We shouldn't go in. Even though God already conquered Egypt and God already parted the Red Sea and God's leading us and feeding us and providing for us, he, can he show his power in any other way than he has more clearly? but we can't overtake them. Even though God already told us that's our land and to go in, we can't do it. Who were the two that said, who cares about these giants? Let's go in the land. Joshua and Caleb. Listen to what they said in Numbers 14, 9. Do not rebel against the Lord. Do not fear the people of the land, for they shall be our food. NIV, we will devour them. Their protection has been removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Key words, the Lord is with us. You can't do anything in your own strength. The giants, so to speak, in your life, you should fear them if you're trying to tackle them in your own strength. But if you realize that God is with you, like Paul said in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. 
There's not a situation. There's not a struggle. There's not a temptation. There's not a trial. There's not a difficulty in your life that you can't overcome if you are trusting in Jesus Christ. See, God was with the Israelites. God's not only with you today. God is in you today. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus said in the book of John, the Father and I will come and make our abode with you. We will give you the Holy Spirit as well. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the power working in us to will and to work for his good pleasure. So what do we have to fear? Answer, nothing. Point number four, Jesus takes hold of us. Verse 16, Hebrews 2, 16. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. If you read the whole first chapter, it's about the contrast of Jesus and the angels. Jesus is greater than the angels. God said, to which of the angels did I say this? You are my son, today I have begotten you. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. You, Lord, in the beginning did lay the foundation of the earth. Are not all his angels just ministering spirits, rendering service to those who will inherit salvation? They're just servants of us. They're just servants of Christ. Christ is God. Thy throne, O God. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The Hebrews, these Jewish Christians, seem to embrace angels on a whole nother level than God intended for them to be. They're putting them up on a pedestal, maybe even worshiping them. And so the writer to the Hebrews is lowering the angels back down to where they belong and elevating Christ. And he's saying here in verse 16, Jesus didn't come to die for the angels even. He didn't come to take hold of them. That's the King James. That's what the word help means in the Greek. Epilambanomai. You want to try to say that one? Epilambanomai. I just like how that flows. To lay hold of. That's the Greek word used in verse 16. He gives epilambanomai to the descendant of Abraham. Who's the descendant of Abraham? If you're in Christ, you're a descendant of Abraham. Galatians 3.29. If you are Christ's, you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. Who does Jesus take hold of? Who does Jesus help? Those who are in Christ. Those who are spiritual descendants of Abraham. First Timothy 6.12, fight the good fight of faith. Epilambanomai, Timothy, take hold of eternal life. Hebrews 8.9, this is what God says of Israel. On the day when I, epilambanomai, on the day when I helped you, or I took you, I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. He was walking them. He wasn't some distant God saying, I'll come to your rescue when you need me. He was right there with them, guiding them, directing them, holding them. And yet they still didn't trust him. I think of my son Leland when I would take him to the beach when he was little. And I would take hold of him and I would hold his hand and I would walk him out and we'd keep walking out. I've got you. Oh, but look at the wave. No, don't worry. I've got you. We're not out that far. Daddy's afraid of the waves too, okay? So we're going to, we'll, we'll stay up to about knee level. But I think there was one time where I was holding him and I kind of like took my eyes off and the wave smacked him and he was under the water for a couple seconds. He was fine, but he never wanted to go back in the water with me again after that. So he went through a couple years of being very tentative by the water. God's not like that. You know, when we hold our kids' hands or that example I just gave, sometimes we mess up. Sometimes I sh we should be holding tighter, watching over them. You know, God, when he holds us, he's got us. Hebrews 2.16. In the Weymouth New Testament puts it this way, and I like this translation. For assuredly, it is not to angels that he is continually reaching a helping hand, but it is to the descendants of Abraham. He's continually reaching out with a helping hand. Do you remember Peter? Remember when he was on the boat with the disciples? I picture Peter as this rugged fisherman, right? 
with a big beard, just a tough guy. You know, I saw one of the chosen episodes, I think season one, and he's a strong dude, but kind of little, kind of scrawny. I, I grew up watching cartoons of the disciples and Peter always had this big beard and thick guy and was just rough. And I think that's how they're trying to portray him in that show. Although I don't really watch it anymore, but you think of Peter as this rough guy, at least I do. And here he is with the, in the boat with the disciples. It's late at night. Jesus tells them to cross over. And then Jesus starts walking on the water. It's Matthew 14. And you know what the disciples do when they see Jesus? They say, it's a ghost. They're terrified. They're shaking with fear. But Peter's usually the one that, though he's fearful, he'll, he'll, he'll make some sort of step or he'll say something or he, he doesn't think. He just does things, right? And so in Matthew 14, 28, while all the disciples are still shuddering, at least Peter says something. He says, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Jesus said to Peter, come on out. So you picture this, Jesus walking on the water. Peter takes that step of faith. What happens next? Does Peter just start dancing on the water and walk out to him and just full of faith? He was for a moment there. The text says he looked at the wind. He looked at the waves. He took his eyes off of Jesus. He got fearful and he began to sink. Did he say, I got this now. I'm okay, Jesus. I'm going to try swimming. I'm a fisherman. I've been on the water for many years. No, he said, Lord, save me. Matthew 14, 30. He cried out to Jesus, Lord, help me. Save me. Sozo is the Greek word. Lord, rescue me. I'm about to drown. Did Jesus say, go ahead, Peter. Just try to swim. I want to see how this goes. You know, you got too fearful. You messed up. Let's make you pay for this. What does Jesus do? Matthew 14, 31, it says, Immediately, Jesus epilambanomai. Jesus stretched out his hand and he took hold of him. That's a picture of Jesus' heart for his children. He's ready to give us a helping hand whenever we call upon him. I love that about Jesus. See, we're not like that. We can, we can remember things. We can recall things. We don't always love. Love keeps no record of wrongs, but we can be like, yeah, but you wronged me, so you got to pay for it a little bit. Then I'll, then I'll forgive. Then I'll give you that hand. But you got to earn your way back to me. You got to do something. You ever done that in marriage before? Or do you just forgive right away every time? You just have that hand out and, okay, I'm ready to forgive. I don't know about you, but there's that tendency in me. Well, not with Jesus. The moment you ask for help, the moment you ask for forgiveness, immediately he's there to take hold of his children. He hears our, our cry and he saves. I love that. Point number five. Three more points. Jesus took the wrath you and I rightly deserve. Jesus took the wrath. Not some of it, not part of it, all of it. Verse 17 Hebrews 2.17, Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Propitiation. It's a big theological word, right? It means to appease the wrath of God, to be our substitute, to be the satisfaction of to save. He took our sin upon himself so that now we can be free. Now we are declared righteous. Him who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You can unpack that doctrine, substitutionary atonement, propitiation. You can read lots of books on that. That's a whole nother teaching in and of itself or series. But the main point is that the blood of bulls and goats wouldn't do. How many sacrifices in the Old Testament wouldn't do? They had to keep sacrificing them, as we're told in the book of Hebrews, over and over and over again because it never fully took away sin. Year after year, those priests had to go back in to the Holy of Holies and sacrifice those animals to the Lord. And it was a covering. 
It was a temporary covering over their sin till finally, once for all, Jesus became the propitiation for our sin. 1 John 2, 2, not only the propitiation for our sin, but for the sin of the whole world. The offering of Isaac wouldn't do in Genesis 22, though it was a picture of Jesus to come. What did Abraham name that place? Genesis 22, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. Mount Moriah, the same mountain where Solomon put the temple and where sacrifices for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years followed. Genesis 22, where ultimately Jesus was crucified 2,000 years later after Genesis 22 on Mount Moriah for our sin. Because in this mountain, the Lord will provide. And he did provide. He provided Jesus, the one who took the wrath of God upon himself instead of us. What greater friend than that? John 15, 13. Greater love has no man than this, than to lay down his life for his friends. Jesus said, you're my friend if you do what I command you. John 10, 11, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Can you imagine if you were dying of heart disease and the doctor said, if you get a heart transplant, you'll get 20 more years of life. Now, they can't guarantee anything, but 20 years of life would be pretty great rather than maybe dying in a month or two. Who do you get heart transplants from? You can't get it from someone who's alive because what will happen to them? You can't live without a heart. I've read, I was reading through some stories as I was putting this together of police officers who gave up a kidney for someone in the community they were serving, and that was pretty cool. And you can give up certain body parts to help others and still live, but you can't give up your heart and still live. But what if someone come to you, came to you as you're dying there in the hospital and said, I'm young, I've got a lot of money, I've got my life ahead of me, but you're my friend. I want to give you my heart. What would that mean to you? If you had a close friend that just said, I'm going to give it to you. Romans 5, 7 through 9 says, For one will hardly die for a righteous man. You might be able to find someone who would do that for you. You just might. One in a million. Though perhaps for a good man, someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. He saved us from the wrath of God through his propitiatory death on the cross for us. And just to bring that illustration one step further, Would you give up your heart for a close friend? Would you give up your heart for an enemy? Someone who hates you? But while we were yet sinners, enemies of God, hating him, he died for us. That's a true friend that we have in Jesus. Point number six. Jesus knows our every weakness. He knows our suffering. He knows our pain, and we need to be reminded of that. Verse 18, the last verse. For since he himself was tempted in that which he suffered. You know, I talk to Leah, and we go back and forth because she'll say, you just don't, and we don't have this conversation all the time, but she says, you just don't know what it's like to have a baby, or you don't know what it's like to do this or that. And then I'll say, yeah, but you don't know what it's like to work on an ambulance for 24 hours or 48 hours and make $9 an hour and then you get your paycheck and half of it's missing on top of that. You don't know what that's like. And then we go back and forth. Yeah, but you don't know what this is like and you don't know what that's like. Hebrews 4.15 says Jesus sympathizes with us in our weaknesses. What does it mean to sympathize? It means to be affected with the same feelings as another. There's no feeling, there's no struggle, there's no temptation, trial, or pain that you go through that Jesus can't say, I went through something greater. Greater magnitude, more pain, more struggle, more trials, 
the agony of the cross, the wrath of God, the sin of the entire world on his shoulders, a weight that no one could bear but him as he was entrusting himself to the Father. So you and I can't go to God, we can't go to Christ with anything that he can't say, I can't sympathize with you in that. Does that mean that every single temptation that we've had and all the intricacies of life that he went through that exact temptation? I don't believe that. But I believe he was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. In every way that we're tempted with the force and the power of the desire and the enemy just coming at us with all his flaming arrows and intensity, Jesus felt that too and he was victorious. And he's the one living in you. Remember Matthew 4? Remember Satan? Jesus is thirsty, he's hungry, he's fasting 40 days and Satan comes at him with three big temptations. If you're really the son of God, turn these stones into bread. If you're really the son of God, fall down and worship me. I'll give you all these things. I'll give you every kingdom of the world. Throw yourself down from this temple if you're really the son of God. How does Jesus respond all three times? It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. It is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. TKO, knockout. Satan goes running, resist the devil, he will flee from you. Take a page out of Jesus' book. When you're tempted, go to the word of God. Never put the word of God down in your heart and in your mind. Carry the sword of the spirit at all times. With suffering comes temptation. It's been said that every trial is a temptation. And every temptation is a trial. It's a, it's a trial to lose trust in God. It's a trial to say, my will, not your will. It's a trial to turn back and go to Egypt. It's a temptation. You need to trust in Christ and run to him. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Jesus knows all about that. So go to him in prayer. Seek him for help. Last point, number seven. Jesus runs to show his children compassion. Verse 18, last part. He's able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. I don't necessarily like how that translation puts it. Come to the aid. He's able to come to the aid. It's a, it's a great promise there. But when you look, I love looking at the Greek to just get a more full understanding. And the Greek word come to the aid as translated in NASB is boetheo. And it means to run and to meet an urgent distress call. It was a military term. Think of like a, a, an army medic who's running over as one of his comrades has fallen down, as one of his comrades is bleeding out. To boetheo, to come to the aid, that's where, you know, we have the word first aid. Go render first aid. Jesus, he's just ready. He goes, I've suffered, I know what they're going through, and I know how to help. And so he's ready to show compassion. And to illustrate this last point, you think of the prodigal son the one who squandered the inheritance, the one who wrecked his life, the one who hit rock bottom, the one who was eating out of the pigsty, and then he came to his senses, and he realized, I need to go home. I need to go to my father. And that's hard to do, because back then your father could just say, I gave you the inheritance. Be gone. You've dishonored me. You've dishonored my home. No. But before he could even tell the father, that I've sinned against you. Would you please, Father, receive me back? He, if you read the text, he's battling in his mind of what to say. Okay, this is what I'm going to say. Father, I'm not worthy. I've sinned against you. You see this humble posture. So he's going back. What does the Father do? He sees him at a distance, and the Father runs out to him. The Father runs out to show compassion. He hugs him. He kisses him. He puts a ring on him. He kills the fattened calf. He throws a party. That's the heart of the Father. That's the heart of Christ. To run to show compassion to his children. 
you turn to him in humility, you turn to him with, and just say, Lord, I have nowhere else to go but you. He's immediately going to epilambanomai. He's going to reach out his hand. He's going to run after you. He's going to embrace you and help you. Psalm 102, verse 17. He will respond to the prayer of the destitute. He will not despise their plea. I want to close now with the story of a man named Joseph Scriven. Joseph Scriven, he lived in the 1800s in Ireland. His future was full of hope. He was engaged to the love of his life and on the night before his marriage, Scriven's soon-to-be wife traveled along the river to meet him. In a moment of madness, her horse threw her off. She fell to the ground. She hit her head. She died in the river. As the water rushed over her, Scriven got there too late. She was dead. Scriven was traumatized. He went on with life, though emotionally shattered. He moved to Canada from Ireland in 1845 and wanted to serve the Lord there and start new. So he devoted his time to helping people in need. He wanted to follow Christ's example in the Sermon on the Mount. It was reported that he never once turned down a request for help. So one day in 1854, as he was planning to get married again to this now, a woman who he met while teaching children, yet again, Weeks before the wedding, his fiancée fell ill with pneumonia and she died at 23. Scriven was heartbroken. He turned to God once again, his only true friend. He cried out to God for mercy. He wrote his mom a poem. You might have heard it. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful? Who will all our, all our sorrows share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. There's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. His name is Jesus. Never forget that.